Tower Treasure, Chapter 12, Days of Waiting Hinton Hardy had high hopes of a quick solution of the mystery when he went to New York. Possession of the wig, the hat, and the coat gave him three clues, any one of which might lead to tracing the previous owner quickly. The detective was confident that it would not be long before he would unravel this tangled thread. He had not stated his optimism to the boys, being careful not to arouse their hopes. But in his heart he thought it would be but a matter of hours before he ran the owner of the red wig to earth. But obstacles presented themselves before him in bewildering succession. The wig appeared to be his chief clue, and when he arrived in the city he went directly to the head office of the company that had manufactured it. When he sent his card into the manager, he was readily admitted, for Fenton Hardy's name was known from the Atlantic to the Pacific. "'Some of our customers in trouble, Mr. Hardy?' asked the manager, when the great detective tossed the red wig on his desk. "'Not yet. But one of your customers will be in trouble if I can ever trace the purchaser of this wig.' The manager picked it up. He inspected it carefully and frowned. "'We are not, as you know, a wig-making firm,' he said. "'That is, the wig department is a very small side-line with us.' "'The very reason I thought it would be easy to trace this,' replied Mr. Hardy. "'If you turned out thousands of them every year, it might be more difficult. "'You sell to an exclusive theatrical trade, I believe.' "'Exactly. If an actor wants a wig of some special nature, we do our best to please him.' We only make the wigs to order. Then you will probably have a record of this one. The manager turned the wig over in his hands, glanced carefully at the inside, felt of the weight and texture, and then pressed a button at the side of his desk. A boy came and departed with a message. It may be difficult. This wig is not new. In fact, I would say it was turned out about two years ago. A long time, but still... I'll do the best I can. The bespectacled old man shuffled into the office at that moment, in response to the manager's summons, and stood waiting in front of the desk. Kaufman here, said the manager, is our expert. What he doesn't know about wigs isn't worth knowing. Then, turning to the old man, he handed him the red wig. Remember it, Kaufman? The old man looked at it doubtfully. Then he gazed at the ceiling. "'Red wig, red wig,' he muttered. "'About two years old, isn't it?' prompted the manager. "'Not quite. Year and a half, I'd say. Looks like a comedy character's type. Wait till I think. There ain't been so many of our customers playing that kind of a part inside a year and a half. Let's see, let's see.' The old man paced up and down the office, muttering names under his breath. Suddenly he stopped, snapping his fingers. "'I have it,' he said. "'It must have been Morley who bought that wig.' "'That's who it was, Harold Morley. "'He's playing the Shakespearean repertoire with Hamlin's company, "'very fussy about his wigs. "'Has to have him just so. "'I remember he bought this one because he came in here about a month ago "'and ordered another just like it.' "'Why would he do that?' asked Mr. Hardy. Kaufman shrugged his shoulders. Ain't none of my business. Lots of customers keep a double set of wigs. Morley's playing down at the Crescent Theater right now. Call him up. I'll go and see him, said Mr. Hardy, rising. 
You're sure he's the man who ordered that wig? Positive, replied Kaufman, looking hurt. I know every wig that goes out of this shop. I give them all my personal attention. Morley got that wig. He got another like it a month ago, I remember. Kaufman is right, put in the manager. Morley has a very good account with us. If Kaufman says he remembers the wig, it must be so. Well, thank you for your trouble, answered Fenton Hardy. I may be able to see Mr. Morley in his dressing room if I hurry. It lacks about half an hour of the theater time. You'll just about make it. Glad to have been of service, Mr. Hardy. Any time we can do anything for you, you just ask. Thank you, said Fenton Hardy, and shook hands with Kaufman and the manager, and then left the office bound for the Crescent Theater. But the detective's hopes were not as high as they had been. He knew that Morley, the actor, was certainly not the man who had worn the wig on the day of the roadster was stolen, for the Shakespearean company of which Morley was a member had been playing a three-month run in New York. It would be impossible for the actor to get away from the theater long enough for such an escapade, just as it was improbable that he would even try to do so. He presented his card to a suspicious doorman at the Crescent and was finally admitted backstage and shown down a brilliantly lighted corridor to the dressing room of Herod Morley. It was a snug little place. The dressing room for Morley had been fitted up to suit his own taste once it was assured that the company would remain at the Crescent for an extended run. There were pictures on the walls, a potted plant in the window overlooking an alleyway, and a rug on the floor. Seated before a mirror with an electric light at either side was a stout little man, almost totally bald. He was diligently rubbing cold cream on his face, and when Fitton Hardy entered, he did not turn round, but, eyeing his visitor in the mirror, casually told him to sit down. "'Often heard of you, Mr. Hardy,' he said, in a surprisingly deep voice that had a comical effect in contrast to his diminutive, diminutive appearance. "'Often heard of you. Glad to meet you. What kind of a call is this, social or professional?' "'Oh, professional.' Morley continued rubbing cold cream on his face. "'Spill it,' he said briefly. "'What's it all about?' "'Ever see this wig before?' asked Mr. Hardy, tossing the red wig on the table. Morley turned from the mirror, and an expression of delight crossed his plump countenance. "'Well, I'll say I've seen it before,' he declared. "'Old Kaufman, the best wig maker in the country, made this for me about a year and a half ago. "'That's the kind of wig I wear for Lancelot Gabot in the Merchant of Venice. "'Where did you get it? I sure didn't think I'd ever see this wig again. "'Why?' "'Stolen from me. Some low-down egg cleaned out my dressing room one night during the performance. Came right in here while I was doing my stuff out front. Grabbed my watch and money and a diamond ring I had laying by the mirror. Took this wig and a couple of other things I had laying around and beat it. Nobody saw him come or go. Must have got it by that window.' Morley talked in short, rapid sentences, and there was no mistaking his sincerity." How many wigs did he take? About half a dozen. Funny thing about that, too. They were all red. Took nothing but red wigs. I told the cops to be on the lookout for a red-headed thief. I didn't worry so much about the other wigs, for they were for old plays, 
but this one was being used right along. Coffin made it specially for me, and I had to get him to make me another one. But say, where did you find it? Oh, just a little case I'm investigating. The crook left this behind. I was trying to trace it. Well, you've traced it all right. That's all the help I can give you. The cops never did find out who cleaned out my dressing room. Mr. Hardy was disappointed. The clue of the red wig had led only to a blind alley. But he concealed his chagrin and tossed the wig over to Morley. Gee, I sure am glad to get it back again, declared the actor. Things haven't gone right for me since I got it stolen. Losing it brought me a whole flock of bad luck. Sorry I can't be of help to find the guy that took it. What's he been up to now? Fenton Hardy evaded the question. Oh, I'll probably get him some other way. Give me a list and description of the stuff that he took from you. Probably I can trace him through that. Hop to it, said Morley breezily. Hop right to it, old man. Here's a list of the stuff right here. He reached in a drawer and drew out a sheet of paper, which he handed over to the detective. That's the same list I gave to the cops when I reported the robbery. Number of the watch and everything. Mr. Hardy folded the list and put it in his pocket. Morley glanced at his watch and laying beside the mirror, face up, and gave an exclamation. Suffering succotash! Curtains in five minutes! I'm not half made up yet. Excuse me, Mr. Hardy, but I've got to get busy. In this business, I'll be ready in a minute. Don't go. He seized a stick of grease paint and feverishly resumed the task of altering his appearance to that of a character he was portraying at the matinee that day. Mr. Hardy, smiling at the actor's casual informality, withdrew from the dressing room and made his way out to the street. A blind alley, he muttered. I was sure I could trace the fellow by means of the wig. Oh, well, he shrugged his shoulders. I still have the hat and coat, and if the worst comes to worst, I can try to trace the chap through the stuff he stole from Mr. Morley. For it was probably the same man, but it looks like a big job. It was a big job. Efforts to trace the purchaser of the hat and the coat were fruitless. The search ended at the second-hand store where the owner vainly tried to sell Mr. Hardy a complete outfit of clothing at a bargain, but could not or would not remember who had bought the coat from him. He sold so many coats, and at such bargains, that he could not remember the customers who came in to the store. Mr. Hardy was forced to retire defeated. The predominating quality of the detective's character was patience. When he found that he could not trace the thief through the wig, the hat, or the coat, he doggedly set to work trying to trace the man who had broken into the dressing room of the actor, Morley, and this in spite of the fact that the police had already given up on that case. Then, in his spare time, Mr. Hardy spent hours at the police headquarters, poring over records, searching for partic particulars of hundreds of red-headed criminals. It was over a week before he found what he wanted, and it came from a chance note at the bottom of a police description of a thief who was at that time out on parole. But when Fenton Hardy saw the note, he knew he had stumbled on the clue he needed and he smiled grimly. It won't be long now, he remarked in the popular phrase of the day. Chapter 13 In Poor Quarters 
In the meantime, the Hardy boys were finding the suspense almost unbearable. They had expected their father would be away but a day at the most. But when two days dragged by, then three and finally an entire week, without word from Mr. Hardy, further than a brief note from New York stating that he was well and that the case was not as easy of a solution as he had hoped, and they became depressed. If Dad can't get the thief, no one can, declared Joe with conviction, and I'm beginning to think that even Dad is falling down in this affair. Better wait till he admits it himself, suggested Frank, although I don't mind telling you, I'm not very hopeful myself. Frank's preoccupation air had not gone unnoticed. Callie Shaw, a classmate of his, had noticed, and one day at school she asked him, "'What's on your mind, Frank? You've been going around looking like a human thundercloud for the last week.' "'Who, me? I didn't notice,' returned Frank heavily. "'Yes, you,' she replied, mimicking his lifeless tone. "'You used to be full of fun. What's the matter?' "'Can't I help?' She glanced up to him eagerly. Frank shook his head. No, you can't help, Callie. It's about Slim. Slim Robinson? Oh, yes. Wasn't that too bad? said Callie, with quick sympathy. He had to leave school. They tell me he's working in a grocery. And he was so anxious about being a lawyer. I was talking to him this morning. He pretends he likes the work he's at. But I could tell he wishes he could go back to school again. I'm really sorry for him. And on account of that confounded tower robbery. But nobody really believes Mr. Robinson did it. Of course not. Nobody but heard Applegate. But until they find out who did take the stuff, Mr. Robinson is out of a job and nobody will hire him. Isn't that too bad? I'm going to see Paula and Tessie and Mrs. Robinson tonight. Where are they living? Frank gave Callie the address. Her eyes widened. Why, that's in one of the poorest sections of the city. Frank, I had no idea that it was this bad. It is. And it'll be lots worse unless Mr. Robinson gets work pretty soon. Slim's earnings are merely enough to keep the family. Isn't there any chance that Mr. Robinson will be cleared? That's what's worrying me. Dad's working on the case. Then why should you worry, said Callie triumphantly. Why, that means it's all right. Your father can do anything. I used to think so, too, but he seems to be stuck this time. What's the matter? He went to New York almost a week ago, and some clues that Joe and I were certain would clear up the affair, and so far we haven't heard from him, only to know that the case was harder than he expected. But he hasn't given up, has he? Well, no. Then what are you worrying about, silly? If your father has given up the case, there would be something to worry about. If he's still working on it, then there's always hope. They walked on in silence for a while. Let's go out to see the Robinsons, Callie said suddenly. I've been intending to go, but I sort of, well, you know. You thought it might embarrass them. Well, it won't. I know Paula and Tessie well. And they're not that kind. They'd appreciate a friendly visit. Frank hesitated. He had the natural shyness of his age, and he felt awkward about visiting the Robinsons in their new home 
for he knew they were now in the reduced circumstances, and might not wish their former friends to see them in their present plight. All right, I'll go. We can't stay long, though. No, I must be back in time for supper. We'll just drop in on them, so they'll know that we haven't forgotten about them. I thought you were going over to see them tonight. I was, but I've changed my mind. I want to come with you now. Frank hailed a passing streetcar bound for the section of the city in which the Robinsons lived, and they got on board. It was a long ride, and the streets became poorer and meaner as they neared the outskirts of Bayport. "'It's an outrage, that's what it is,' declared Callie abruptly. "'Mrs. Robinson and the girls were always accustomed to having everything so nice, "'and now they have to live away out here. "'Oh, I hope your father catches the man that committed this robbery.' "'Her eyes filled for a moment, and she looked so fierce that Frank laughed. "'I suppose you'd like to be the judge and jury at his trial, huh?' he chuckled. "'I'd give him a hundred years in jail.' When at length they came to the street to which the Robinsons had moved, they found that it was an even poorer thoroughfare than they had expected. There were squalid shacks and tumble-down houses on either side of the narrow street, and ragged children were playing in the roadway. At the far end of the street they came to a small unpainted cottage that, that somehow contrived to look neat in spite of the surroundings. The picket fence had been repaired, and the yard had been cleaned up. "'This is where they live,' said Frank. "'It's the neatest place on the whole street.' Paula answered their knock. Her face lighted up with pleasure when she saw the callers. "'Frank and Callie!' exclaimed the girl. "'You've come to see us. Come in. We're dying of loneliness.' "'There hasn't been a soul out this way since we moved.' "'Callie flashed Frank a look of triumph and whispered, "'There now, didn't I tell you they'd be happy?' "'And they went on into the house. "'They were greeted with kindly dignity by Mrs. Robinson "'and with the girlish good humor of Tessie. "'Mrs. Robinson received them with the same self-possession "'she would have shown had they been in the Tower Mansion.' and Frank wondered at himself for thinking that these good people might be ashamed to meet their old friends in this new and humbler home. "'We can't stay long,' explained Callie, "'but Frank and I just thought we'd run out and see you.' "'We're all well. That's one mercy to be thankful for,' answered Mrs. Robinson. "'Perry is working. I suppose you knew that.' "'And Mr. Robinson?' inquired Frank. She shook her head. "'Not yet,' said Mrs. Robinson. Her lips quivered. "'It's so hard for him,' she said, "'without a recommendation, you know. "'It looks as though he might have to go to another city to get work. "'And leave you here?' "'I suppose so. We don't know what to do.' "'It's so unjust,' flared Paula. "'Papa didn't have anything to do with that miserable old robbery, "'and yet he has to suffer for it just the same.' "'Has your father discovered anything yet, Frank?' asked Mrs. Robinson hastily. "'I'm sorry,' admitted Frank. "'We haven't heard from him. "'He's been away in New York following up some clues, but so far there's been nothing. "'Of course, it isn't often he falls down on a case. "'We hardly dare hope that he'll be able to clear Mr. Robinson. "'The whole case is so mysterious.' 
"'I've given up thinking about it,' Tessie declared. "'If it is cleared up, all well and good. "'If it isn't, we won't starve, at any rate. "'And Papa knows we all believe in him.' "'Yes, I suppose it doesn't do much good to keep talking about it,' "'agreed Mrs. Robinson. "'We've gone over it all so thoroughly that there's nothing more to say.' So, by tacit consent, the subject was changed, and for the rest of their stay Frank and Callie chatted of doings at school, and Mrs. Robinson and the girls invited them to remain for supper. But Callie insisted that she must go. When they left, they promised faithfully to pay another visit in the near future. Only once again was the subject that was nearest their hearts brought up, and that was when Mrs. Robinson drew Frank to one side as he was leaving. "'Promise me one thing,' she said. "'Let me know as soon as your father returns, if he has any news.' "'We'll do that, Mrs. Robinson,' agreed the boy. "'I know what the suspense must be like for you. "'It's terrible, but as long as Fenton Hardy is working on the case, "'I'm sure that it will be cleared up, if it is humanly possible.' And with that, the matter rested. Callie was unusually silent all the way home. It was evident that she had been profoundly affected by the change that the Tower Mansion mystery had caused in the lives of the Robinsons. Naturally sympathetic and tender-hearted, she felt keenly the injustice of it all, and she realized even more than Frank what it had meant to Mrs. Robinson and the girls the move from their comfortable home in the mansion to the squalid and distant part of the city in which they now lived. Callie lived about a few blocks away from the Hardy home, and Frank accompanied her to the gate. Mercy, she exclaimed, glancing at her watch. It's after six. I'm always late for supper. So am I. See you tomorrow. Surely, but Frank. Yes? Callie hesitated and looked directly into his eyes. Frank, she said, if your father somehow doesn't clear up this affair, you and Joe simply must do it. You must. For the Robinsons, I mean. It means so much to them. Dad won't fall down on it. Don't worry. And Joe and I are giving all the help we can. His confidence was contagious. Callie brightened up immediately. In that case, she said gaily, the mystery is as good as solved. The three best detectives in the world are working on it. Goodbye, Frank. With that, she ran lightly into the house. Chapter 14 Red Jackley It was another week before Fenton Hardy returned to Bayport. Contrary to the expectations of the boys, he did not arrive from New York. Instead, he came early one morning. Having reached the city by train from the west, he had sent no advance notice of his arrival, and the first his sons knew of it was a servant told them that their father had reached the house in the early hours of the morning, plainly careworn and travel-stained. He had gone immediately to bed, leaving orders that he was on no account to be disturbed. This was at breakfast, and although the boys were wild with impatience to learn the outcome of their father's trip, they were obliged to curb their curiosity. Mr. Hardy was still asleep when they left for school that morning, and to their surprise he was asleep when they came back home for lunch. "'He must be mighty tired,' remarked Joe. "'I wonder where on earth he came from. Probably been up all night. When Dad gets hard on work on a case, he forgets all about sleep. I'll bet he found something. Hope so.' "'But I wish he'd wake up and tell us. 
I hate to go back to school without knowing. But Mr. Hardy had not awakened by the time the boys sat out for school again, although they lingered until they were in danger of being late. All afternoon they were tormented by curiosity. Where had their father been? What had he discovered? As soon as school was out, they fled down the steps, broke away from a group of boys anxious to get up a baseball game, and shattered all records of their race for home. Fenton Hardy was in the library, and as they rushed panting into the room, he grinned broadly at his sons, for he was quite well aware that they were impatient to hear the count of his trip. He looked refreshed after his long sleep, and was evident that his trip had not been entirely without success, for his manner was cheerful. The hardy boys knew their father well, and they knew that when a case was difficult of solution, the great detective became moody and worried. "'What luck, Dad?' asked Frank, perching on the arm of an easy chair. Mr. Hardy raised his eyebrows, pretending not to understand. "'About what?' he inquired. "'About the case, the Tower Mansion case, the red wig. Did you find out who owned it? Did you catch the thief?' "'Whoa, whoa, not all at once. "'A question at a time, please. "'Now, do I understand that you want to know "'if I found out anything about the Tower Mansion affair?' "'Don't keep us waiting, Dad,' pleaded Joe. "'You know that's what we're asking you about.' "'Well,' answered Mr. Hardy, "'yes and no.' "'That's not much of an answer,' objected Frank in disappointment. It's the best answer I can give, unfortunately. I did find out something about the red wig, but as for connecting its wearer with the tower robbery, that is still to come. You traced the fellow who wore the wig? I did, and he turned out to be a well-known criminal. Well-known to the police, that is. What's his name? asked Joe. Jackley. John Jackley, commonly known as Red. Because he has red hair? No. "'because he hasn't red hair. "'That reverses the usual order of nicknames. "'I imagine this fellow, Jackley, "'has a fondness for wearing red wigs. "'And was he the man that stole Chet's roadster? "'It seems almost certain. "'I traced the wig which had been originally stolen "'from the actor in New York. "'I traced it to Jackley "'because his habit of wearing red wigs "'is well known to the police, "'and by locating him and keeping a close watch on him,' and paying a call at his rooms one night when he was out, I managed to find some of the loot that he had taken when he robbed the actor. That seemed to connect everything up very well. "'Where did you find him?' asked Frank. "'In New York. He wasn't in hiding, for he hadn't been sought for any particular crime at that time. The police seemed to overlook him in their investigation of the dressing-room theft. "'Did you accuse him?' No, I wanted to learn more. When I found the articles that had been stolen from the actor and knew that the wig found by the roadster had been taken at the same time, I knew Red Jackley was the auto thief. But I wanted to get some information of the Tower Mansion affair if possible, so I took a room in the house in which Jackley was living and kept a close watch on him. Did you learn anything? Jackley himself spoiled everything. He got mixed up in a jewel robbery and cleared out of the city. Luckily, I heard him packing up, and I trailed him. The police were watching for him, and he couldn't get out by railway. 
That is, not in the ordinary manner. Instead, he tried to make his escape by jumping a freight. And you still followed. I lost him two or three times, but luck was with me, and somehow I managed to pick up his trail again. He got out of the city, out into New Jersey, and then his luck failed him. A railway detective recognized him, and then the case was on. And then the chase was on. Up to that time, I had been content with just keeping behind him. I had hoped to pose as a fellow fugitive and win his confidence, but when the chase started in real earnest, I had to join with the other officers. And they caught Jackley? Not without a chase. Jackley, by the way, was once a railroad man. Strangely enough, he had once worked not many miles from here. He managed to steal a railway gasoline speeder and got away from us. But he didn't last long, for the speeder jumped the tracks on a curve and Jackley was badly smashed up. Was he killed? I don't think he'll live. He's in the hospital right now, and the doctors say he hasn't much of a chance. But he's under arrest. Oh, yes. He's being held for the jewel robbery and also for the robbery of the actor's dressing room. But I don't think he'll live to answer either charge. Didn't you find out anything that would connect him to the tower robbery? Not a thing. The Hardy boys were disappointed, and their expression showed it. If Red Jackley died, the secret of the tower robbery would die with him, for by now Frank and Joe were convinced that the notorious criminal had indeed been the thief for whose misdeeds Mr. Robinson was now suffering, and if the secret died with him, Mr. Robinson would be doomed to spend the rest of his life under a cloud, suspected of being a thief. "'Have you seen Jackley yet?' asked Frank. "'After the smash-up. I didn't have a chance to talk to him. "'You might have been able to get a confession out of him?' Fenton Hardy nodded. "'I may be able to get one yet. "'If he's sure he's going to die, he may admit everything. "'I intend to make an effort to see him in the hospital "'and ask him about the tower robbery anyway. "'Is he far away?' "'Mr. Hardy named a small city not far distant from Bayport.' I explained my mission to the doctor in charge, and he promised to telephone me as soon as it was possible for Jakeley to see anyone. I'm convinced that the fellow had something to do with the tower affair. It's certain that the stolen automobile was him, and the wig proves that. By the same token, it's certain that he was the man who tried to hold up the ticket office. Having failed in that attempt, it seems more likely that an old-time criminal like Jakeley would look around for something else to do before he left Bayport. "'You say he used to work near here?' asked Joe. "'He was once employed in the railroad, and he knows all the country around here well. Then he got mixed up in some thefts from the freight cars, and after he got out of jail, he became a professional criminal. It was when I was looking over the records that I found out about his, his fondness for wearing red wigs.' That was what eventually proved his undoing. If he had not robbed the actor's dressing room to get the wig that he used when he was in Bayport, I would never have traced him. At that moment, it was announced that the chief colleague of the Bayport police wished to see Fenton Hardy. The detective winked at the boys and told the servant to show the, the chief in. Chief colleague entered the room, mopping his brow with a handkerchief, for it was a hot day, and he was a stout man. 
Behind him came Detective Smoof, fanning himself with a straw hat. Good afternoon, gentlemen, said Mr. Hardy. Won't you sit down? Chief Colleague eased himself into an armchair. Detective Smoof leaned against the table. Both glanced inquiringly at the two boys. Unless your business is very private, I'd just as soon have the boys stay, suggested Mr. Hardy pleasantly. He did not trust Chief Colleague and Detective Smoof, who came to him only in emergencies, and who usually took all the credit for themselves whenever he helped them out of their difficulties. He preferred to have the boys present as witnesses. "'How about it, Chief?' asked Smoof heavily. "'Can they stay?' "'I guess so,' grunted Chief Colleague, undoing his collar of his uniform. "'Can't do no good, and they can't do no harm.' "'Well, gentlemen,' "'For what do I owe this honor of this visit?' asked Mr. Hardy. "'We've been hearing things about the Tower Mansion case,' observed Chief Colleague gravely. "'You've been working on it, eh? Perhaps it's my own business.' "'Police business is everybody's business,' declared Colleague judicially. "'What we want to know is, did you find out any clues?' Detective Smooth fished out an inevitable notebook and pencil. "'I'll note em down, Chief,' he remarked. "'You may as well put back that notebook, Smoof,' snapped Fenton Hardy, with annoyance. "'If I went anywhere, it's my own business, and if I still am working on the tower robbery, it's my business, too. I'll thank you to keep your own affairs.' Chief Collig opened his mouth and then closed it again. He took out a handkerchief and mopped his brow, all the while staring at Fenton Hardy. Then he turned and gazed at Smoof. "'Detective Smoof,' he said in a solemn voice, "'did you hear that?' "'I did.' "'What do you think of it, Detective Smoof?' "'I think—' "'I think—' "'Detective Smoof groped for an expression "'that would encompass the magnitude of the offense. "'I think Mr. Hardy is guilty of obstructing the cause of justice,' "'he said grandly. "'Obstructing fiddlesticks,' said Mr. Hardy.' I'm minding my own business, which is more than some police officers seem capable of doing. Chief Colleague sighed. The trouble with you, Mr. Hardy, he said, is that you won't cooperate. If you cooperated a little more, we would all be farther ahead. There ain't any cooperation at all. Here is me and Smooth doing our best to drive crime out of Bayport, and you won't cooperate. Perhaps the fact that there's a thousand dollars reward in the case isn't making you anxious for some cooperation, suggested Fenton Hardy dryly. It ain't got nothing to do with it, replied Chief Colleague virtuously. We're just anxious to see this affair cleared up, that's all. Now, Mr. Hardy, we hear you were with the officers that chased this here notorious criminal Red Jakeley. Mr. Hardy gave a start. He had no idea the news of the capture of Jakeley had reached Bayport, much less that the news of his own participation in the chase had reached the city. What of it? Did Jakeley have anything to do with this here tower case? How should I know? Wasn't that what you were working on? That's my affair. Detective Smoof and Chief Colleague looked at each other. You ain't cooperating, complained Chief Colleague. You're going to put us to a whole lot of worry and expense just because you won't give us a little cooperation. Just what do you mean? Detective Smoof and me 
was thinking of going over to the hospital where this man Jakeley is and giving him the third degree about the tower case. Benton Hardy's lips narrowed into a straight line. You can't do that. The doctor won't let you see him. We're going to try anyway. There's a train at seven o'clock, and we aim to have a talk with this fellow Jakeley tonight. Mr. Hardy shrugged his shoulders. Go ahead. It means nothing to me. But if you take my advice, you'll stay away. You'll just spoil everything. Jakeley will talk when the time comes. Oh, ho, said Detective Smooth triumphantly. Then there is something to it, eh? I knew there was, said Chief Kolig. Come on, Smooth. We'll make this man Jakeley talk yet. We're officers of the law. We are. And I'd like to see any doctor keep us from doing our duty. He mopped his brow again, put on his hat and nodded to Fenton Hardy, and clumped out of the room. Detective Smooth, putting his notebook in his pocket, followed. The door closed behind them. Mr. Hardy sat back in a gesture of despair. They'll spoil everything, he said. They're just so clumsy that Red Jakeley will close up like a clam if they try to make him talk. Perhaps, remarked Frank significantly, they'll miss their train. At that moment the telephone rang. Mr. Hardy answered it. Hello, yes, this is Finton Hardy. Yes. Oh, yes, doctor. He is? Well, well. Is that so? Won't live another morning. I can see him. Fine. Thank you again. Goodbye. He put back the receiver. There, he said wearily. Just my luck. Red Jakeley is dying, and the doctor says I can see him tonight. But Collig and Smoove will have first rights to talk to him, for they are officials, and I'm only a private detective. If Jakeley confesses, they'll have the credit for it. They'll just have to miss that train, said Frank. Come on, Joe. Let's see what we can do.